I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today, a special treasure hunting episode of Fifth Emission. We're talking about The Fisherman's Secret, available now on sfchronicle.com. Believe me when I say this is a story worth your time. Reporters Tara Duggan and Jason Fagoni have created the most incredible tale centered around fisherman Giuseppe Panisi. Giuseppe, or Joe as most people know him, is a third-generation commercial fisherman and a father of six who for years has struggled to make ends meet. Then one day, as he's fishing in the federally protected waters outside the Golden Gate, he makes a discovery that will forever change his life. He spotted gold bars hundreds of feet down on the ocean floor. This modern-day treasure hunt is one of the most ambitious stories we have ever told at the Chronicle, one that is so compelling we even made it into an audiobook. Our subscribers can download the book for free at sfchronicle.com fisherman. And you'll also be invited to an exclusive event with our treasure hunters. So if you've been thinking about supporting local journalism with a subscription, this would be an excellent time. We'll play an excerpt from the book on this podcast, but first I want to welcome the writers, Tara Duggan and Jason Fagoni. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Audrey. So, Tara, you were the first one who met Giuseppe Panisi. Can you tell us, how did you meet him at first? Yeah, I well, I cover seafood and the fishing industry at the Chronicle as well as other food stories, and I met him when he was working on a campaign to get the port of San Francisco to allow fishermen at the port to sell their fish from their boats, which wasn't allowed previously. Right. So so this was, a, I remember this story because it was so exciting. The idea that you could it's forget about going to the supermarket or anything else. You could go directly to Fisherman's Wharf, finally a reason to go there uh, for us locals, and buy fish right off the boat. And and uh, Mr. Panisi was like really the ringleader of all of that. Exactly. So what yeah. year was that when you started talking That was talking 2017. To 2017. So you kept in touch with him over the years. And then one day he texts you something. Can you tell us about the text? Yeah. So he, we had been in touch quite a bit because I was continuing to cover some of the things he was doing at the port. And one day he sent a text saying, do you want to see something I found at the bottom of the ocean with my camera? And what was your first thought? Like, no, I don't want to see that. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, it was a little mysterious and I wasn't sure exactly what was coming. He had sent me, he sent me all, he would send me a lot of photos all the time. think fish he'd caught, his kids, things like that. But it was definitely a, a little odd. And sure. What was it that he texted you? <laughs> so then he texted this photo of what looked like just fish swimming at the bottom of the ocean around a square rectangular object that looked kind to me it looked kind of white, whitish, and it looked it didn't look like something you'd see in the ocean. Right. And no. what did you what was your first guess of what <laughs> my, it was? My first guess was it was a wrapped brick of cocaine out of Miami Vice. <laughs> See, that is a reporter's first <laughs> inclination if I've ever heard one. But but he texts you back and says, no, Tara, look at what color it is. Right. And, and, and then I had a little aha moment and I said, treasure. And he said, yes. And then he said, swore me to secrecy and said we'd have to talk more. So And asked you exciting. to come to yeah. the dock. Yeah. So, Jason, uh, you got wrapped into this um, when, when we realized this was just an incredible story. Uh, can you explain to us what, uh, what does Joe do for a living? Like, he's a fisherman, but he does a specific kind of fishing. 
Sure. Joe practices a kind of fishing called bottom trawling, or also known as dragging. So it basically works by attaching heavy weights to a fishing net, and the, the net sinks down to the bottom of the ocean, and then he tows the net from his boat, and the net scoops up various kinds of fish that, that live on the seafloor at these um, crushing depths that are very difficult for humans to reach. And so the boat is you know, going along on the surface of the ocean, but Joe's fishing net might be up to about 4,000 uh, feet deep. And it's not a very glamorous uh, way of fishing. It's, it's a way of fishing that his Sicilian ancestors brought here uh, generations ago and has been handed down um, you know, from his grandfather to his father to him. Um, and, uh, but Joe is kind of a tinkerer at heart. He loves to, um, you know, create sort of tools and machines. And so he, he figured out some improvements to the old, uh, trawling methods. And some years ago he started to attach these GoPro video cameras to his trawling net. So, so the, these cameras are, are, you know, um, working at depths of a thousand to 4,000 feet sometimes. And they're capturing a, a view of the ocean floor, not in real time, but he would um, he would hook up these GoPros to his net, and then he would watch the videos later on at night while he was laying in bed at his house. So these would not be uh, very sort of interesting videos for most of us to watch, right? <laughs> really, really boring. It's just this sort of like a like a very um, green gray stretch yeah, like of the bottom lucky. of the ocean. Yeah, it's, no, nobody it's else. Not the Caribbean. Nobody else would at. would be sort of obsessively watching these videos late at night, except Joe. Right? It was interesting to him because he's a trawler and he had never been able to actually see his net operate at depth. Like his father had never been able to see that. His grandfather had never been able to see that. He was the first Panisi to actually be able to watch this, you know, crucial tool of a trawler, the net, uh, operate at the bottom of the seafloor. So, so for him, it was fascinating, but it just so happened that completely by accident, he was, uh, watching these videos one night, you know, laptop on his chest in bed. And, um, he happened to see something that was not supposed to be there, which was this object that looked very much like a giant gold bar. So we're going to play an excerpt from the audiobook, which is uh, um, your story that you've written for the Chronicle. And uh, let's listen to what his reaction was like. One late night five years ago, fisherman Giuseppe Panisi was lying in bed with his laptop propped up on his barrel chest, reviewing video footage captured from his 76-foot boat, the Pioneer. The boat is a bottom trawler. It scoops up fish with a net that bounces across the seafloor at depths of more than 4,000 feet. A tinkerer, Panisi likes to keep GoPro cameras attached to the net, allowing him to study the footage and improve his technique. That night around 2 a.m., he noticed his camera slide past something unusual. Along the murky seafloor, fish and rocks come in rounded shapes and soft colors, muted grays and greens. His eyes were attuned to this drab underwater landscape, which is why he had been puzzled by brief flashes of light on the video screen, shiny surfaces glimmering by. Then he saw it. A rectangular object, sharp-edged and pale, almost white, with a tinge of yellow. It was September 2014, and Panisi, who goes by Joe, was 50 years old, with four decades of fishing behind him. He had sailed on commercial boats since he was seven. His father and grandfather had towed their nets in the same waters for more than a century. He had never seen anything like the object in the video. Still, Joe sensed immediately what it might be. 
His net often got caught on the rotting underwater husks of old ships wrecked just beyond the Golden Gate, and he knew that some of those ships, Spanish Galleon's Gold Rush-era steamers, had carried treasure. He rewound the video, peered forward, and froze the frame with a yellow rectangular object. It looked for all the world like a gold bar, an ingot. For a few minutes, he stared at it while his wife, Grazia, slept beside him. Then he started to scream. Joe, Grazia, and their six children shared a beige stucco house in Castroville, north of Monterey, California. At the time, he kept his boat at the Moss Landing Harbor ten minutes away. Later, he would shift the boat to Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. He liked living in Castroville because his backyard was spacious enough to accommodate old trawling gear and a rusty crane for construction projects. But the house felt cramped with only three bedrooms for eight people. Grazia handled most of the kid duties, because Joe spent so much time working. And, unlike her husband, who had become semi-nocturnal after years of fishing through the night, she maintained a normal schedule. Mm, I gotta get the kids up for school, Grazia said, stirring on her side of the bed. What is it? He played the video for her. I think it's gold, he said. She squinted at the yellow rectangular object. How do you know what it is? She asked, then rolled over. Go back to sleep. Chapter 2 A Really Big Secret Joe tried to imagine what it would feel like to hold a gold bar. How heavy would it be? How smooth? In his bed in Castroville, he went back to the beginning of the video and looked for the flashes he had noticed earlier. That's when he really started to freak out. Because the rectangular object, whatever it might be, wasn't the only one. The GoPro had captured hours of video on its memory card, in 12 separate clips lasting 18 minutes each. Over the next few days, Joe watched the video over and over, first on his laptop, then on a large television screen. All in all, he ended up counting more than 50 glints of yellow, and of those, about 30 seemed to have rectangular shapes and straight edges consistent with the contours of gold ingots. They were spread across a quarter mile within the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, a vast swath of federally protected water off the California coast. The sanctuary covers 6,094 square miles, stretching from Marin County south to San Luis Obispo County and extending 30 miles offshore on average. Joe plies his trade there along with thousands of amateur and professional fishers, pulling his net back and forth across the bottom of the Pacific. He had no idea how much one bar of gold might be worth. Half a million dollars per bar? A million? How much for thirty of them? He began thinking, what would he do with that kind of money? Buy a bigger house, obviously. Retire in a few years instead of fishing until the day he died. But in the weeks that followed, as he thought more about what he'd seen on the ocean floor, his excitement turned to anxiety, then dread. That's an excerpt from the audiobook The Fisherman's Secret, which is available to our subscribers right now for free on sfchronicle.com slash fisherman. Uh, we'll be selling that book, but right now it's free for our subscribers who are also going to be invited to an exclusive event with our treasure hunters. Let's take a break right now and we'll come back and talk more about Joe's treasure. 
Tara Duggan, tell us more about Joe's family and how his business was going when you when you met him. Yeah, when I met him, he and his uh, wife and six children were living in Castroville in the Monterey area, and he was fishing out of a port there. And they had a small house of, I think, three-bedroom house with all the kids. And the, the fishing industry that he's in, this trawling fishing fishery, had been struggling for a while. So he was having a hard time making a living from this from this type of fishing. It it went under a lot of pressure from the federal government because around 2000 the fish in that fishery were their populations had dropped to very low levels and the government had stepped in and imposed a lot of um limits on how much you could fish them. And so he actually had to get a smaller boat. And he had a hard time making enough, you know, with all the expenses of fishing, actually making a decent living. So it was a struggle. That was one of the reasons he started trying to sell fish at the wharf to get a a bigger income from his fish directly. And then since then, they've moved to Chico to to have a bigger house, but still really far away from Fisherman's Wharf. So he's commuting an incredible distance and having a hard time making ends meet. Is that fair? Right. So, yeah, they did decide to move up to Chico. They'd lived there before and they were able to get, you know, they bought the better schools and a, a, a bigger house, like you said. But that did mean that he had to drive back and forth between Chico and San Francisco. What he tends to do is go on a fishing trip, then work on the boat on both the beginning and after the fishing trip. And then so he'll only go home about once every two weeks or so. So he doesn't get to see the kids very often. Yeah, that's incredible. There's a great story. There's a great line in the story and in a in a video that uh, Santiago Mejia, who went out on the on his boat with you guys, um, where he says, you know, one gold bar would would change his entire life because he's really struggling. But Jason, I, there are a lot of characters in the story that are very interesting and I think very San Franciscan and and take us back to really a core industry that helped form this town. One of the characters, one of the people in it that I think is really fascinating is Jolene. Can you talk about who Jolene is and what role is she playing in this story? Yes, Jolene Lambert Skinner. She is Joe's duck boss. So she's a hugely important person in his life, in his business and career. She's essentially his second in command on the Pioneer. She's kind of like the Riker to his Picard. <laughs> um, she handles the crew on on the ship. You know, she kind of keeps them in line, and she's a very tough and capable woman. She uh, wears her hair in her ponytail that's tied with a plastic zip tie, and she puts whiskey in the coffee that she gives to people on the boat. And uh, people really respect her and, and heed her. And um, I think importantly for Joe, she she tends to be sort of much more detail oriented and pragmatic than him. Um, so she ends up handling a lot of the practical details of his fishing business that keep it functioning. And she she and Joe also have developed a very close bond. She's deaf, and uh, when she talks, it it can be difficult for many people to understand her. But um, Joe understands her. And in terms of the quest for the gold, she became a really crucial figure because I think uh, Tara would agree with this. She was kind of one of the few people around Joe who didn't seem to lose their mind whenever <laughs> he would talk about the the riches that they were all sort of chasing. You know, I, I think when 
when people start to talk about gold and treasure and, you know, 30 gold bars and tens of millions of dollars, there's something that happens in the brain that just kind of, you know, he would see people zone out and their eyes would glaze over. And that never happened with Jolene because she's very grounded and her whole attitude about the gold was basically, yeah, it would be nice, but there are more important things in life than money. So he could kind of trust her uh, in a way that he couldn't necessarily well, trust she, a lot of the she's people. She's kind of his foil in a lot of right. ways in this story. And I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, several times when I was reading the story for the first time, my eyes like zoned out and was like, what would it be like to discover that much gold in the bottom of the ocean? I think it's like it's something just inherent in in humankind that 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 happens. And certainly there's a lot of people that he meets along the way that are trying to help him get the gold that, right. that, that this same thing befalls him. So she would actually try to keep him focused on the fishing. Like she would, she would get irritated that the gold was taking away from his focus on the fishing. She'd be like, come on, man, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta prepare for our, our fishing trip. You know? So Tara, you know, he's a, he's a bottom trawler, which is increasingly a rare form of fishing in California and um and 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 when he finds these bars on the bottom of the ocean what's preventing him i mean if i found that can i just go scoop them up well, i mean what's what's keeping him from doing that immediately that's the question everyone asks immediately when i tell them about this story and i think what was surprising to me was to learn how much of the coast and the you know the pacific along our coast is controlled by different government entities and Basically, the entire Calif- almost the entire California coast is covered by a national marine sanctuary, a very large portion of it. And so that means there are sp- particular rules about what you can do, what you can't do. He soon learned that you can't send divers or robotic, you know, robotic submersibles down without a permit by the national government. And they very rarely offer such a permit. But There are also other legal challenges. For example, if it's an old shipwreck from a Spanish galleon from the 1500s, Spain still could lay claim to the whatever is on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, lots of lots of legal challenges (laughs) for him. He has to find a new way to do it. So, Jason, you know, I I think what makes me so interested in the story besides the gold is um, Joe really seems like an allegory to me about so much of where we find ourselves in California. What did you want to accomplish in telling this story? So. I think at first glance, you might not think that you would have a lot in common with a commercial fisherman like Joe. And he absolutely has a very sort of specialized set of uh, experiences. He spent his entire life on the water. But uh, after talking to him and, and learning his story, what really struck me about him is that when it came to retrieving treasure, he was basically no different than you or me. I mean, if, if, if you came up to any of us and said, you know, um, we have this video of uh, what could be gold bars in the bottom of the ocean. Let's figure out a plan to go get it. I wouldn't know the first thing to do. And uh, that was very much the case with with Joe, too. Um, and, you know, he didn't have a lot of money or resources to figure out how to go get these gold bars. Because in a lot of ways, he is like anyone else who's trying to make it in San Francisco and survive. For instance, he doesn't make enough money at his job, as you guys already talked about, to be able to live close to the city. He's had to, you know, move his family further and further away. And um, a really striking thing about Joe to me is that when he 
um, first saw these bars in the video and he started to fantasize, you know, what, what would I do if I had $60 million or $30 million or however much money it was, you know, the first thing he, he thought he would do with that money was what buy a house. Yeah. He'd buy a house close to the city so that he wouldn't have to have as long of a commute. And that's, that is just absolutely a typical dream that anybody in the Bay Area, you know, has, has today. I think he's trying to survive here. And so, so his, his dream about this gold, you know, it was an unusual, uh, quest that he went on. But I think the dream is a very common one, uh, for people here, which is a dream of just being able to like, just being able to stay here and make it here and keep doing the thing that you are already doing and not to mention that it's about about gold too which is which is basically the entire reason that san francisco exists in the first place the gold rush created this city absolutely we're all it's the i call it the self-fulfilling prophecy of san francisco people came here originally the uh, non-natives came here to make your millions in the gold rush and arguably we're still doing that in san francisco absolutely so the last question for you guys what kind of challenges what did you did you face in trying to report and tell this story? That's a good one. I Besides think... seasickness when you went out <laughs> with right, Joe on right. his boat. That was actually really fun going out on the boat um, to learn. I, I went out with with them for a two-day trip to learn more about how the how, how trawling is done so I could, could describe it really well. I think the challenge was figuring out how to tell the story Without giving away the ending, it's not an easy story to tell. It doesn't have a natural arc in some ways. And that was why it was great working with Jason because he has, as a narrative writer, he knows how to frame stories and build suspense. And and so I think just figuring out the structure was challenging. Um, and there were a lot of legal issues that were really confusing and sometimes seemed contradictory. And it took us a while to sort through that. To really explain why, because the question still remains, why can't he just get the gold? And it, you know, we had to sort of unpack that why it was so challenging. So I don't, I actually, I don't think that's the. I think maybe you could talk about something more compelling there. So, oh, so, so instead <laughs> yeah, of like fine. structuring the story or like working with me, uh, nobody's okay. going to give a shit about that, right? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> Thank you, though. That was nice. <laughs> the real talk yeah. from the writers. Room. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, what? So, what? What struck me in talking talking with you? Because you you've known Joe uh, for years, and he's been a source of yours for years. And he came to you with this uh, secret that was, you know, sort of like the biggest thing in his life. And he had spent um, so much time at that point trying to to keep the secret and to not reveal it. And then he. He makes a decision at some point to come to you and essentially to tell tell all of this stuff about, you know, uh, something that is, you know, valuable enough that could change his life, but also could potentially be stolen by competitors or, you know, snatched away with from him in, in some in some sense. So how did how did you um, sort of convince Joe to trust you with this hugely important? I mean, that's the, that's the interesting thing to me, like how, how you did that. I still don't really know how you did, but you did. Well, I think that it was it took time. I mean, he actually did come to me with this almost or two years ago, and it took us a while to first hear the whole story. We also waited a little to see if maybe something would change, if some new developments would happen. But he so there were when he when we started, there were things that he wouldn't let us include in the story that we later 
he later he did allow us to include, which were important things to tell the story. You know, it, if you don't have the details, it's not very interesting, right? So if you try to leave out important details that he wants to keep confidential, it's not going to make a lot of sense. So it, I think it just took a lot of time, um, a lot of conversations, a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. I think that was it. It was time, right? I saw you go back to him again and again and again and people around him again and again and again. And it's just, maybe that's the thing that people don't appreciate about work like this, in-depth work, narrative work. It's just, it's it's an incredibly, you know, it takes an incredible amount of patience. <laughs> right. And I think it's important to explain why we needed some of those details and um, to help him understand how we could frame it in a way that wouldn't reveal something really important to him. Right. So. Well, I, I have to say that one of the best days of my entire year was when one of the editors working on this, Michael Gray, our managing editor for Enterprise and Investigations, came up to me and he said, this story, it's really good. And I, <laughs> Michael doesn't say that very often. And he was right. And it made my whole my whole year. We're not going to say exactly what happens to Joe on this podcast. Everybody should read the story uh, themselves. But suffice to say, um, I think it has quite a surprise ending. And I have a feeling the Bay Area is going to become pretty familiar with the name Joe Panisi very soon. So thanks, guys, for being on the podcast and talking about it today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to reporters Tara Duggan and Jason Fagoni for being with me today. The Fisherman's Secret is live right now on sfchronicle.com slash fisherman. As Jason said, this takes a lot of resources in the newsroom and we need your support to do even more of it. You can subscribe today and get free access to the audiobook and also be invited to an exclusive event with our treasure hunters. The audiobook alone is a great way to fill all that time you're not spending on the Fifth Emission podcast. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Fifth Emission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.